This is To Live in Law in L.A., a Nixon Peabody podcast. Heart disease. It's the number one cause of death in the world. Every year in the U.S. alone, 200,000 people are in dire need of a heart transplant, but less than 2% of that population receives one. It's extremely difficult to get on the transplant list. You can't be old enough to collect Social Security. You can't be overweight. You can't drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes. And those are just a few of the many requirements. If you get on the list, you still have to wait for the perfect donor with the perfect blood type. Your body can still reject the foreign heart, and you'll have to take immunosuppressant drugs for the rest of your life. But could 3D bioprinting technology fix all of that? Today, we talk to Eric Birkenader, a Nixon Peabody partner in our digital health group, and Steve Morris, the CEO of BioLife4D, a company that is working to create a 3D bioprintable transplantable human heart created from a patient's own blood cells on demand. Does this sound too good to be true? Today, we step into the future and we learn more about the possibilities ahead. All right, I'm Neil Gauger, one of your hosts. I'm here with Shannon Egan, my co-host. Hello. And uh, we're also here with Eric Birkenader. Hello. And Eric, tell uh, the folks about what you do here at Nixon Peabody. So I've been working here for about six years, and I focus mostly on digital health patents. So in college, I built a brainwave analyzer that would tell you when you're meditating. Um, so I first got into digital health. Turns out I was never meditating because I was always stressed out. Um, <laughs> it was very cool. And um, lately, there's a lot of issues with software patentability. It's like the first time patents have been controversial and ever is, you know, software patents, are they bad or good? Mm-hmm. But for me, trying to help clients that have digital health applications figure out what's patentable and what's not has been what I've been focusing on lately. And it's been pretty cool because not a lot of people have that expertise. Fantastic. Our other guest is Stephen Morris, who is attending by phone. So, uh, Stephen, why don't you tell everyone about yourself? Sure. Um, I um, am the CEO um, and founder of BioLife4D, a biomedical engineering company, and we are working on 3D bioprinting human hearts viable for transplantation using the patient's own cells so that we uh, eliminate rejection and uh, the need for immunosuppressant therapy. Take us through what it's like to print a 3D heart. Like, Where do you start and what does that look like start to finish? So what we do is we will uh, have a patient that will take an MRI of their heart and we're doing that just so that when we ultimately bioprint the replacement organ, it'll be an exact perfect size. So it'll be a perfect match physically. Then what we do is we take the patient's blood and from their blood, we take the white blood cells and we literally reprogram those white blood cells, which are specialized cells, into adult-induced stem cells. And stem cells are able to change themselves into everything. And what we do is we take some of the cells and we make them each of the different types of cells that make up the heart. So what we do is we take those and we put them in what we call our bio-ink. Our bio-ink is the ink in which we literally bioprint the organ from. So the cells will be in there and nutrients and growth factors and things to protect it in the printing process. We take that bio-ink, we literally um, lay them down one one layer at a time with a bioprinter. So we give that back to the transplant surgeon. Transplant surgeon will be able to implant it back into the patient. Since it's made out of the patient's own cells, there's no risk of rejection and there's no need for immunosuppressant therapy. When I think of 3D printing, I think of some weird plastic cubey thing. Yeah, exactly. It is like, oh, no, 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 no. The ink is the blood and the stem cells and you're creating something biological with 3D printing. 
that's a whole revolution. Absolutely. And the convenience and all the different things you can do with manufacturing. I mean, a lot of people think manufacturing is going to come onshore once the cost to 3D print are much lower than sending it abroad and having them injection mold print things. And I think that although everyone knows about 3D printing, it hasn't really hit mainstream use yet. And even on you know the medical side, for instance, um, you know, there's a lot of regulatory hurdles um, to anything new, and 3D printing is right. definitely one of them. All right, so I want to start out big. This technology, 3D bioprinting, the idea that we could create a heart, I mean, the mind boggles with where this could go. So here's what I want to know. Does this mean we can live forever now? And is that what we want to do? Well, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that's remained to be seen scientifically. From what I understand is that even if you kept replacing like all your tissues, um, your telomeres might run out. And for those of us who don't know what that means, I mean, obviously I, I do, yeah, yeah. We clearly, I mean, right. we're well-versed. But, but for the listeners who don't, what is a telomere? Yeah, I was biomedical engineering undergrad in grad school, but I didn't focus as much on biology. But from what I understand, just think of it as a strand of yarn inside your cells that shortens every time your cell divides. Hmm. And so eventually it just runs out, and for some reason then you die, or you're more likely to die at that point. So everyone thinks that the holy grail to living forever is the telomeres somehow. And I think Elon Musk is actually working on trying to uh, figure out how to live forever but should we live forever you know that's another philosophical question it probably depends on how things are going sure and then there's and there's huge bioethical issues that are raised by this concept could there be a world in this where people are engaging in the 3d printing of hearts or other organs electively right and and, and what, I th what i'm thinking about is if you know if you're a baseball fan there's tommy john surgery traditionally tommy john surgery people would get it on their arm they blew something out, and it was seen as a way to extend a pitcher's life. But nowadays, you know, you'll see 18-year-old, 19-year-old prospects electively having Tommy John surgery early because it actually strengthens the arm in some capacity, or they feel like it's going to extend their career, and they want to get started with that process early. Could you see a situation, if potentially you could build a better heart, where someone might electively say, all right, I'm, I'm a young, healthy person, but I want a better heart. I want a 3D-printed heart. Is that something technologically feasible or wanted? And on the other side, is it ethically and legally? Where does that fall? You know, with all of healthcare, they always start out doing the most extreme things or the most innovative things on the on the people that have no other choice. You know, and so it makes sense that we do it this way. You know, I think a lot of things would have to change where there was elective heart surgery, including just surgery itself. Right. You know, because there's a lot. Right. Of, I have a deviated septum, but I still won't touch it with surgery because I a huge just, risk. <laughs> there's right. a huge risk right. associated mm -hmm. with it still. And then, yeah, and I think, I guess, legally malpractice-wise, you know, again, I'm not an expert, but I would imagine recommending those surgeries would have to probably be well, well established that they're safe, um, I think, at that point. So it's a very interesting question. Steve, what do you think? Well, you know, that touches on the ethical side of what we're doing, which is a very interesting conversation to have. It could be a, it can, it could be a very extensive one. But the long and short of it is... Yes, it's possible. Yes, it's feasible. Like theoretically, somebody can say, "Hey, you know what? I I want my son to be the the fastest runner, so replace his heart with a heart that's thirty percent more capacity." Right. Even with doing IVF, um, my my granddaughter was born with um, IVF, and prior to doing it, when they, we tested the cells to make sure there were, that it was a healthy embryo that was being implanted into my wife. 
sometimes that technology can be used to say, okay, I only want you to implant boys or girls. This is what I want. It's not supposed to be used like that, but there's those opportunities definitely arise. There's also a whole other question like, well, if you're going to bioprint a heart anyway, why not do one that has an extra valve built in? Right. right, so that in the case you have valve disease, you've got a backup already built in. So, so there, there's those type of questions, and, and and people can ponder that for a long period of time. Our objective is to get as close to the way Mother Nature is doing it as possible. Do you have any projections in terms of what the cost of this might be to get a 3D printed heart made? And- we think it's going to be a fraction of the cost of what it currently costs for a donor heart. So on average, I think it's about $1.4 million insurance companies pay for somebody that ends up going through uh, open heart surgery. Our cost of goods sold is the people's blood. How long do you believe until you could have one of these hearts actually implanted into a patient? If, if everything goes as well as it's been going so far, we could be talking, you know, less than five years. The brain goes in all these directions. I, I can think about, you know, if I was the president or if I was very wealthy, would I always want to have a 3D printed version of my heart on ice ready to go in case I had a heart <laughs> attack, right? Because maybe... Well, that brings up a great point. So the, the next evolution of this is is once we're able to bioprint a, uh, you know, this heart, um, if we're able to create a bioreactor, that's basically a chamber to keep it alive and keep it viable for a long period of time, then that's the next evolution of what the, what's going to happen here. So other than 3D printing, are, are there things that you see on the horizon? Are there technologies or techniques or other things in the medical field that you think, along with 3D printing, are going to represent the future of medicine or are going to help create uh, a better quality for a better, longer life? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're, we've talked with pediatric cardiac surgeons that that take scans of, of a fetus while it's still in, in the womb and, and literally um, 3D print a, a model of the infant's heart so that they can practice the surgery prior to actually doing the surgery on the infant. So there's all sorts of incredible applications of 3D printing. Um, A lot of it has to do with um, uh, patient-specific type of of applications. So for instance, we could take some of your cells and we could 3D print a tissue. Then they can test different drugs on your tissue to see which one works best for you. So there's, there's so many different applications in the biomedical engineering field and 3D printing um, and all of these, these types of technology that, work, that we're bringing together. All of them have got in, incredible ways to give people better quality of life going forward. So to what extent is the law prepared for 3D printing? And what I mean by that is, so the analogy that I always think of in the criminal law work that I do is that the Fourth Amendment, right, freedom from unreasonable search and seizure, was not prepared for the cell phone and the digital world. Are the regulatory frameworks that currently exist for medical devices, do they anticipate that 3D printing is going to become a part of that? How is the law going to keep up and how is it going to adjust? I think the biggest challenge for the law is that um, the personalization aspect of 3D printing. So how do you uh, grapple with the fact that every single print is going to be different? Like, for example, the FDA is very comfortable with injection molding or any other process that makes the exact same thing every time. So I think that is going to be challenging for them. It's easier, though, than AI. Um, that's an interesting other example, for example, for the FDA. So 
with AI in the healthcare industry, for example, you could have a bunch of data come in and then tell you that this person has some disease Mm -hmm. and it's super accurate and no other doctor could make the correlation that it finds in the data because it's just too complicated. The FDA hates that because it's a black box to them. When they even look at algorithms, they want to know, what are you looking for in the data exactly? Even if I don't know exactly know how you kind of put it together, I want to know like what are the, the main factors. And with some kinds of AI, you don't know anything about what it's really grabbing onto in the data. Hmm. Um, but with 3D printing, at least it's it's at least at this point, it's a little more straightforward. It's like right. here's exactly the materials, here's kind of the tolerances within what we're doing. So hopefully, it'll be easier than it will be things like AI for the law. Right, be interesting to see. But how would you, for example, deal with liability issues? Let's say theoretically that, you know, you need to have some form of a healthy blood cell to convert into a stem cell. Well, if I'm someone who has leukemia, but I want to have a 3D printed heart made, are there going to be ethical issues considered into that? Are there going to be liability issues? Who's going to share that liability? Is it going to be a manufacturer's liability? Is it going to be the doctor who's actually creating the injection and and creating and growing the heart? Uh, I mean, are people thinking about these issues? Yeah, I think when 3D printing comes up, that's always one of the major topics that everyone talks about. And it started with 3D printing guns. You know, that was the classic Mm -hmm. example, right? right. Um, But you make a great point is that there's going to be a lot of nuances to it with 3D bioprinting. From what I understand, you can apply the traditional classical rules of um, products liability to it. Um, But there's definitely some unknowns. And anything with the law is challenging when technology is involved just because people don't really understand a lot of it sometimes and and even the judges, you know. So I think for some of those cases, it may be challenging just understanding, you know, who's at fault, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Right, Because I think what makes this unique is the fact that in some ways the customer is part of the product, right? It's their cells. And I don't think there's any thing else that falls into that bucket that at least comes to my mind right absolutely that makes it very interesting definitely so as far as patents what is on the forefront of 3d printing and biotech particularly with technologies like steve's yeah the interesting thing about patents with 3d printing is that 3d printing opens up a whole new world of intellectual property because normally people protect the product the end Mm -hmm. product that's printed right um but one thing that's cool, and there's a lot of chance for IP, is the whole process. So from, okay. you know, what kind of ink you're using, the materials, the settings of the printer, mm-hmm. all the way through the process, there can be IP created. Even um, there's, you know, there's been patent lawsuits over the um, clear liners, the braces that oh, people yeah. wear. So that company um, originally patented um, that process, and the patent covered basically scanning your mouth. Um, figuring out exactly what size aligners you need on mm-hmm. a computer and then printing them out was like the whole patent. Uh-huh. Um, and so it was covering more of the process. And so um, I think that people that are do well in this industry will protect the process, right. let alone just the product, the end product itself. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. And uh, one of the things that we like to do at the end of every episode is we have a couple questions we like to ask folks. So the first question is, What is your favorite thing about L.A.? And it could be your favorite experience. It could be a favorite food. It could be anything. I think my favorite thing is that it's so vast that you could be transported to an entirely different world just if you drive a few miles. So like Koreatown, I'm actually staying there right now. Mm -hmm. Um, It's amazing, and it feels like you're in Korea. If you go to Alhambra a couple hours away, it's like new Chinatown. A lot of people dog on L.A. because it's 
sprawled out, but I think it's actually one of its strengths because there's a, a lot more micro environments culturally where people mm-hmm. can kind of form their own culture. It's it's more um, unique, I think, that way than rather I think just smashed together like New York or San Francisco. Very cool. Wow, you sold me on LA. <laughs> and then the other question we like to ask folks is this: uh, If we gave you a time machine, you could go back. What would you tell your younger self? Stop trying to be perfect. I think that, you know, growing up, a lot of us probably were trying to be straight A students all the time and try too hard. And I think it caused me a lot of stress in life. And now, uh, the older I get, the less I care. Um, <laughs> and ironically, that's when you do your best, I feel like. Absolutely. You know? Going back to the beginning, have you, have you finally figured out how to meditate? Yes. So actually, um, I'm from Wisconsin originally. So no one's ever even heard of meditation back in Wisconsin. <laughs> so when I... F- I was so excited to move up to California because I'm like, oh, I'm coming to California. This is great. Um, and then when I moved to Venice, I found like a little meditation. Like I was teaching meditation. Turns out it was transcendental meditation. So I've actually learned it there and I've done it pretty much every day since then, like five years ago. It's pretty wow. cool. It's fantastic. Long way from Wisconsin now. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, uh, Stephen, you, you've had a chance to cheat a little bit because you've heard the questions, but we'll ask you the same thing. So... Uh, what's your favorite L.A. experience? Well, listen, the first thing that comes to mind for sure is the beaches. That being said, I, I happen to have half of my family living, and my mother's side of the family all lives in Los Angeles. So Los Angeles is very special to me because I, I can visit all my family. Um, that being said, did I mention the beaches? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, Michigan's not so bad. That's so true, especially this time of year. It's still yeah, nice. Lake Michigan is, is not so bad, um, but uh, there's nothing like the ocean out here and the beaches. And the, the whole the whole culture, the whole the, the whole mindset out here is very different than it is in the Midwest. And, and it, it's, it's a joy to be out here. And then I guess the last question we have for you, we ask this of all of our guests. If we gave you a, a time machine and you can go back, um, what's the one thing that you would teach your younger self? Probably it would be to slow down and smell the roses. Probably um, I've been very goal-oriented my whole life and, and very focused on the end game. And I think if I could go back, I'd say slow down and enjoy family um, and, and, and smell the roses and, and enjoy life and, and don't miss all the little opportunities. My children... I grew up so fast, and I wish I could go back and 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 slow that process down. So I I think it would be, it's not the end that counts; it's the journey that counts more. And so so enjoy the journey. Well, that's wonderful, and and we hope with the technology you're developing, people will have longer journeys and and happier and healthier journeys, and uh, ho- hopefully more time for you to spend out in the beach here in Los Angeles. <laughs> that's right. So Eric, Stephen, thank you both for coming in. We really appreciate your time and. Uh, we hope to have you back on soon. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much. This has been To Live in Law in LA, produced and edited by Jesse Lumen. If you liked this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and a comment on iTunes or sharing it on social media. If you have any questions, please email us at livelawla at nixonpeabody.com or visit www.livelawla.com to find out more. 
This podcast has been presented by Nixon Peabody LLP, but the content is meant simply for educational purposes. And accordingly, the views expressed do not reflect the views of Nixon Peabody and are not intended to provide, nor should they be construed as legal advice. This podcast is not intended to, nor does it create any lawyer-client relationship. Listeners should seek their own professional counsel and should not act in reliance on anything expressed by the presenters. To the extent this podcast may constitute attorney advertising under various state ethics rules, we note that any prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.